we stand before Jesus, only Jesus today. We're not here to worship anybody or anybody, anything else, but only Jesus. And that's what we want to sing about and praise and worship him about this morning. Uh, I'd like for us to sing a song we uh, kind of introduced you to a couple of weeks ago. And we're going to be talking about his love and his mercy as we did a couple of weeks ago. And let's all stand let's sing His Mercy Is More. Grace, God's 
Such marvelous grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured. There where the blood of the Lamb was spilled. without the answer to sing when we've been
end where it says, We've no less days to sing God's praise. We've no It'll be a wonderful time when we're all together singing the praise of our Lord and Savior, and we're going to be there in His presence, bodily, or whatever you want to call it, but we'll be there right there with Him. And we're just uh, tuning up for it right now. I hope that's what we're doing as we come together on Sunday mornings and we sing. Uh, the song that the, the choir is going to sing right now, I wanted to kind of let them sit down and get off their feet just for a minute. But uh, not that this song needs any, um, any introduction or any uh, explanation, by all means. It's pretty explanatory as we get into it. You know it. But whenever I hear this song or I see this song, it's called, Sid, uh, excuse, excuse me, Find Me at the Feet of Jesus. I always think of the, the, the event, not the story, the event in the Bible. It talks about Mary and Martha. And Martha was about, if you remember, Martha was all about working and serving and getting everything, preparation. It's wonderful. Martha was a wonderful person. Loved the Lord tremendously and wanted to work for him and serve him and everything. And she was working so hard, and, and, but Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Mary also loved the Lord tremendously, but she wanted to hear more and know him more and be around him more. And everything, and Martha kind of complained a little bit. Says, "But there's Mary over there. I'm, I'm doing all I can to get everything prepared here, but there's Mary there, and she's sitting at your feet, Lord. And we, you know, I need her to help." And she says, "No, but Mary's doing the right thing. She's sitting at my feet, and she's doing exactly the right thing." That's 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 the the the, the event that I think of when I hear the song. Then all of a sudden, the other day, I ran across another event that was a little differently. It was a little more dramatic. Um, they had gotten out of the boat. The apostles had gotten out of the boat, and they had already been through a storm. Um, Jesus had already taught the, taught the masses about the, 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 the sowing of the seeds. And, uh, but anyway, they, they had, they'd gone through a storm, and Jesus had to, to uh, calm the storm. So the, the apostles were a little bit shaken at the time, <laughs> just a little bit. They step off the boat. So they go up this hill, and there's a cemetery or something up there, and there's these guys that are, that are up there, and they're demon-possessed. And everybody stayed away from this place. Everybody was scared to death of, this, of, this guy, of these guys. Now, I'm saying, I'm, you know, I, I say these guys are this guy. Matthew talks about two guys. Uh, Luke and Mark talk about one. We can only think that one, one comes out of this um, and it goes on to what we're going to talk about. But, um, but Jesus confronts them, if you remember, and he casts out all the demons. And uh, if, you, if you remember, uh, they were, Jesus was almost attacked by this guy. That's just like everybody else. And, and so Jesus, you know, cast them out. And if you remember the, the, the events that happened after that was, you know, the demons said, don't, don't just send us away. You know, let us go into the pigs. And so they went into the pigs, and the pigs couldn't handle it. <laughs> so they, had, they ran down the hill, and they all committed suicide, what they did. Well... Obviously, this was a big event. I mean, this was a big dramatic event, a lot more dramatic than the Mary and Martha thing, you know. Uh, 
all of a sudden people from all over the town and all over the city came out to, to, to see what in the world is going on here. And because people were, they were upset, they were confused, they were frightened. This was a frightening thing that was happening. And they, they, they approached Jesus, and they, they really wanted Jesus to leave town, what they wanted to do. But, um, but when they got there, they found this, this man, this man that was demon-possessed, that everyone was scared of. They said that he had superhuman strength, couldn't even chain him. You know, he'd break the chains. But there he was. He was calm. He was fully clothed. He was, you know, he was at himself. He had all of his thoughts himself. And what did the Bible say? He was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And so it's a kind of a different story here, a different take on sitting at the feet of Jesus, right? And so here you have this man who had just been, I mean, you know, the, you talk about the chief of sinners. I mean, this man was, he was a killer. He was an animal, but yet such a glorious, wonderful, supernatural change had taken place in this man's life. And it was so obvious because people were looking there and saying, well, what is he doing there? He's calm. He's not saying anything. He's not, he's not threatening anybody. He's not hitting anybody. But he was sitting at the feet of Jesus. And the irony of the story is where before Jesus said, no, Mary, Mary's doing the right thing. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. But this man, when the, the, the disciples got into the boat, this man wanted to go with them. He wanted to stay at the feet of Jesus the whole time. And Jesus said, no, no, you've got to go. You've got to go tell. So instead of saying, no, you need to sit at the feet of Jesus, he is saying, no, you can't go. You have to go tell. So he goes and he tells. He goes to work. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, 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 the story kind of takes a little bit of different, different take. But you know what it tells me? It tells me that we all, need to sit at the feet of Jesus. Before, you know, once we sit at the feet of Jesus, then we can go out and serve him. Then we can go out and work and do all that, you know? So we, but we're not supposed to just sit at the feet of Jesus the rest of our life. We're supposed to go and we're supposed to tell others. But that's what this song is about. It says, find me. Find me at the feet of Jesus. That's where we belong. If we're going to ever do anything or we're going to ever love the Lord the way we want to, we need to be and that we need to be found at the feet of Jesus. I want you to listen to the words as the choir sings.
wanted to give you a little update on uh, some of the material that we are going to order um, so that we'll, we're better prepared to share the gospel. Um, I know many of us are doing that already, but it doesn't hurt to have some tools. And I wanted to kind of give you an update on that real quick before we get into the message. I talked to you about the Gospel of John, a wonderful tool that you can have on your person, and um, you don't always have to say very much, right, when you hand somebody a Gospel of John, you can just say, here, (laughs) and they can throw it back at you, or, or they can take it, and hopefully they take it. I would encourage you, if you uh, do pick up some when they get here, um, that you would go through and mark some pertinent passages in there that you want them to kind of uh, read through, and, and that would be pretty easy for you to do since you have already read through the Gospel of John and are just about finished with Genesis. Amen? Amen. And Thursday, you will start the book of Romans. Amen? Amen. You're going to start the book of Romans. You guys are awake today. So you're going to start the book of Romans on Thursday, and I'm going to add an assignment for you. Isn't that great and wonderful? Um, it's awesome. I love when you have schoolwork. Isn't it great? Great. Kids love it. So what we're going to do is read through the chapters. You have the entire month of August to do that. But um, I want you to make three observations for each chapter. Now, an observation is simply what you see. All right, now you can't just make it up. It's got to come from the text, okay? So as you're reading through the chapters, um, maybe make some observations. And since August has 31 days as well, there's a lot of grace in the month of August. And I would love to see your observations. So text me your observations. um, Email me your observations. I would love to read through those. Uh, Who knows what the Lord can teach us as a congregation as we go through the book of Romans together. And if you need more grace in the book of Genesis, well, you can start later in Romans as long as you're finished with Romans by the end of August. Make sense? All right. I wanted to tell you about this uh, Gospel of John 2 that we we have to order it the old-fashioned way. And so uh, we have to go by mail, snail mail, and we have to send them a check. And so it's just going to take a little bit longer to get these, but I think you'll find that um, they're worth waiting on. Also, um, we have a little track that it's called Knowing God Personally. If you're uh, interested in perusing through this track, we will actually have all this stuff on the table as soon as these Gospel of John's uh, come in. We'll have them for you guys to pick up on a regular basis. And you never know, right, who you're going to run across during the week where the Lord is we're led by the Spirit of God. And that's who we're led by. As we're led by the Spirit of God. And he brings someone across your path, you'll be able to put this uh, in their hands. It's a tremendous uh, track. All right, well, let's have a word of prayer and then let's get into Jonah chapter 3. All right, Lord, we just want to thank you so much for the day. We do thank you as we sang this morning for your mercy and for your grace. And Lord, I just thank you for what you have taught me this week. As I look quite a bit this week at the historical setting, what was in front of the prophet Jonah. I pray, Lord, that you'd be honored through this morning, and we give you all this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so Jonah chapter 3, 
I don't know if we'll get to the chapter actually today. That'll be okay um, because there's quite a bit of historical information that I want to pass on to you. I did not give you in your notes everything that I'm going to put on the screen, obviously. I have very limited, I gave you space to write. I would encourage if you have a phone, take a picture, right? Take a picture of the slide um, and then you can go back and peruse it. I did want to tell you that a lot of this material today it's a compilation of a lot of different resources. Some of them, if they were singular resources, I put them on there. Uh, others, I'll have to make you a bibliography. I mean, there's just so much information. But I want you to use your imagination just for a minute so that um, we kind of understand what's going on as we come to chapter 3. Remember last week we saw Jonah and the stress he had in the water and the refuge the Lord had in the form of a fish. And then at the end of the chapter, what do we find? God commands... Uh, the fish, isn't that pretty awesome? Because he's in charge of his creation. He commands the fish, and the fish spits out Jonah. There, you know, there are pictures. If you go on uh, the internet, you'll see pictures. Some of them actually look like Jonah's being dropped off at the beach. I like the ones that are projecting him forward. Those look better. Um, you have to use your imagination there. But um, that's what we have. That's what we've come to. So Jonah's out. We believe he looks a little bit different, right? He's been in that fish for three days. The acidity itself, I mean, the, the dude maybe looked a little albino. And somebody mentioned to me after church last week, they said that, not only the way he looked, but imagine how he smelled. He probably needed a little deodorant, right? But I bet you he probably even needed a mint. You think so? He uh, hadn't brushed his teeth, and so he needed a mint, something. Well, he comes out, and we come to chapter 3, and I think in order to appreciate chapter 3, we have to appreciate the historical setting. I mean, Jonah's not just walking along going, all right, man, I get to go to Nineveh. Remember, these guys were the enemies of Israel. I mean, the Lord's graciously sending this prophet to the enemy. <laughs> he, the Lord is so awesome, isn't he? His grace, we sang about that this morning. I don't know that we can fully appreciate the grace of the Lord that he's extended his grace to you if you're a believer and to me. Isn't that awesome? Well, he does that to the people of Nineveh. And so I want to kind of go through a little bit of historical information for you uh, this morning. I think you're really going to appreciate what I studied. I sure hope so. And if you don't, if you want to go to sleep, take a nap, that's up to you, all right? Um, I want you to use your imagination, though. Imagine this. If someone was sent as a missionary to the United States and the central place they were told to go is Washington, D.C. You tell me, class, what would they face? <laughs> Come on, give me, give me some input. What would they face? Huh? Somebody said rebellion? Evil. Corruption, man, this is, it just flows off our tongue, doesn't it, right? I mean, listen, the people in Washington, D.C. need Christ. From the president on down. Now imagine if you're the dude or the lady that's told, hey, you need to go to Washington, D.C. Imagine there are missionaries there now. Can you imagine what's in front of them? Right, we just talked a little bit about it. It's a corrupt place. But you don't just have to pick on D.C. because you can say, well, the United States is pretty corrupt. In the big cities especially, it, they're godless places. 
People are not getting up on Sunday morning going, man, I want to go to church today, and I want to hear about God today because I need Christ today. That's not what's going on. In fact, you don't even have to go to San Francisco or L.A. or New York or Washington, D.C. or Baltimore to find that. You can just get up in Birmingham, Alabama, and you don't have a whole lot of people interested in God. So I'm going, well, here's a dude, a prophet that God's called out, and he says, look, I don't want you to go to your own people. By the way, at that time, Jeroboam II was reigning. He was an evil king. They weren't exactly walking in fellowship with the Lord. They needed to hear the word. But the Lord says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. Well, what happens in chapter 1? He says, yes, Lord, I'm going. No, he doesn't. He's like, no, thank you very much. And he walks off, and he goes down to Joppa, and he's like, I'm taking me a boat. And we know the story about the sailors and how God used the disobedience of Jonah to save some sailors who one day we're going to see. And then they throw him overboard, and we know the rest of the story from last week. And we come to chapter 3, and off goes Jonah to Nineveh. We're not told a time frame. How long was it before he walked toward Nineveh? The Bible doesn't say. I mean, did he go to a bathhouse and get a shower, right? I don't know, take a bath, whatever. I mean, I have no idea. The dude, listen, there is no telling how he looked. But we do know this, that in this setting, in chapter 3, we have the obedience of the prophet. Let me tell you um, a little bit about the Assyrians. The Assyrians, um, oh my goodness. The Assyrians, I can never work this thing. Can you all see that? Yeah. So you see, um, see all this area here shaded? That was the Assyrian Empire. Now some of this was conquered later in, uh, after, after the time of Jonah, but we won't talk get into that today. But during uh, the time that Jonah goes to Nineveh, actually Assyria loses part of, of the territory they had in the northern part of Israel. In fact, it was a pretty dark time in Assyria. Uh, Ashurdan III was reigning. He was the ruler. Um, and actually, Jeroboam had conquered some of the northern part of Israel, um, even back to when Solomon was ruler as king. And so they had recaptured some of the territory that they had lost but nonetheless, God had given a mission to Jonah to go to Nineveh. Nineveh being right here, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Okay? Um, let me give you another map. This one kind of shows you um, a little bit of the territory. And you see these dates here? These dates are significant because these dates mark times where territory was conquered. Now, you can see in the dates, you have 854 B.C. here, but the next date that you have down here is 732. So there was a period of darkness here where Assyria was not advancing its armies. It was losing ground. Okay? It wasn't gaining ground. And this is the time where Jonah is commissioned to go to Nineveh. That doesn't mean Assyria was weak. It was just weaker than it was. Um, and it's interesting to me that the Lord, during this time, 
where Jeroboam re- reconquers some of the northern part that he sends um, Jonah to Nineveh. Um, let me tell you a little bit about Nineveh. Um, if you want to take a picture of that, that's fine. It comes from the Bible Knowledge Commentary. John Walbert put this together. I thought it was some interesting information for us to have. Nineveh was located on the east bank of the Tigris River, about 550 miles from Samaria, which was capital of the northern uh, kingdom. Nineveh was large, and like Babylon, was protected by, the, by an outer wall and an inner wall. The inner wall was 50 feet wide and 100 feet high. Let me give you some other information before we get down to this bottom part here. Um, Nineveh featured like parks, botanical gardens. It had a zoo. Um, one of the greatest archaeological finds of the period, which comes after uh, the reign of Ashurdan III, was Ashurbanipal, who reigned from 669 to uh, seven, excuse me, 727 to 669 um, BC. The size of the city, and I thought this was interesting, the size of the city was 1,850 acres. So when you're trying to put your mind around that, you're going, okay, 1,850 acres, that's a pretty, pretty big place. So I thought, well, let me give them something to kind of help them understand what that might look like. I'm going to fast forward. There, you know where that is? Central Park. You guys, have you been, any of you been to Central Park? Central Park is 843 acres. That's a pretty big place. Um, how many of you covered Central Park in one day? You did that? Uh-uh. Listen, Central Park is massive. When we were over in England, uh, we tried to cover, I can't remember the name of that park. We tried to cover a park there in, in one day, and it was impossible to do. We looked, we're like, oh my goodness, this park's so huge. But Central Park is 843 acres. So now you double that and then add about 250 more acres. That's how big the city of Nineveh was. That's pretty big. So I I did some further study and I found this. This guy had done some research. And um, he said, how many 10 by 10 storage units uh, would you need to store Central Park? Just Central Park. And that was 367,158 units. Now try to think about that in relationship to Nineveh. So we're talking about a massive place, really one of the wonders of the world. And so this is where uh, Jonah was to go. And by the way, they weren't going to have this parade for Jonah. Come on in, buddy. You know, red carpet treatment, you're the guy we've been waiting on. Now there were some things going on that were interesting in terms of... um, from a historical perspective, notice the bottom here. It says, before Jonah arrived at the seemingly impregnable fortress city, two plagues had erupted there. One they attained from um, Samaria, where they were, had gone into battle, and they had come back to Nineveh, and there were many that died from that particular plague. It doesn't tell us what the other one was. Uh, some believe it was a famine in the land. But nonetheless, Nineveh was weakened, the Assyrian Empire was weakening, if you could say that, it was compared to what it was and what it would become, okay? That's very important to keep in mind because this is what Jonah's going into. So if if you think about it, you have two plagues and then you have a total eclipse of the sun and we'll get into more of that 
in the king's response, it'll be next week. I was looking at the clock when they were singing. I was like, there's no way. Um, uh, a total eclipse of the sun occurred June 15th, 763. And, and there's some tie into that, into how a king and his people would respond to that, which I thought was very interesting. Um, these were considered signs of divine anger and may help explain, according to Walvard, why the Ninevites responded so readily to Jonah's message around 759. Asher Don was the king of Syria at the time, and it tells you how, how long he ruled. Um, wow, you think about September 11th, 2001. And how did, how did the people respond then in Washington, D.C.? How did Congress respond? They're calling out to who? God! Well, hey, look, things aren't going too well here. People are dying. There's a total eclipse of the sun. And here comes this prophet named Jonah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, let's see. Next slide. There was an article put out in 2017 about the possibility of the dramatic events in Jonah uh, 3, chapter 3, that's what they're referring to, being linked to the total solar eclipse on June 15, 763. And this is what's said in the article. A total eclipse appears to have played a role in the story of the biblical prophet Jonah. Now listen, I want you to understand, we're not dismissing what the Spirit of God does in people's lives. Please don't think, well, okay, Thad's just taking it from a totally historical perspective. But I think there needs to be some historical perspective for us to understand what was going on in the lives of the people Jonah was going to. How desperate were these people? I mean, how desperate is our nation today, would you say? Desperate. Who's God called to come to this place? I remember sitting in a professor's class when I was at Southeastern, and this professor, who's in the room today, I don't know if, if Dr. Hughley remembers he said this, but he said it. And you know, Dr. Hughley, I don't remember every single thing you said in your lectures. <laughs> Teresa does. <laughs> but I don't. But I did remember Dr. Hughley making a statement, one day missionaries will come to the United States of America. And I thought, no, we're the sending people, right? We're the one that goes around, we save the world. Listen, the United States needs missionaries. And do you know what's the cool part? Is God's made every one of you and me that are in Christ missionaries. <laughs> we don't have to go out and look for them. All of you, how many of you ready to sign up? Huh? You ready to sign up? You're a missionary. I need to see some hands. You're a missionary, right? Don't be like Jonah. Your fish is coming. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, so if you go on in the article, he says a total solar eclipse over Nineveh in northern Iraq on... Uh, June 15, 763 B.C. fits this time frame of the life and career of Jonah. A seriologist, Donald Wiseman, a former curator at the British Museum and editor of the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings, uh, published a lecture by Tyndale Bulletin in 1979 where he argued persuasively that this eclipse would help explain to some extent the dramatic response to Jonah's preaching because we're going to see, man, the whole city repents. Uh, we need, you know what? Repentance needs to start in the house of Washington, D.C. and move all the way through the land. Would you agree? You know, we, we talk about repentance and we say, well, how important it is. Listen to me. It's important in the life of an unbeliever and the life of a believer. 
It just means to turn. Our nation needs to turn to God. Our neighbors need to turn to God. And believers, you know, I know this is kind of a hard one to hear, but sometimes in our lives, maybe we're a little over here, and we need to be a little over here, and we need to turn to God. Now, I think a lot of people, I don't want to get off on a rabbit trail, but a lot of people are looking for answers in all the wrong places. I go, man, I got this greatest love letter. God loves me so much that he gave me this love letter. Listen, young people, I got great news for you. God has given you a picture of what marriage is supposed to be like. Isn't that awesome? And you're not supposed to be unequally yoked. Isn't that awesome? Because you're not going to drag your mate to the foot of the cross. You need to be dating, growing believers. All right, that's a side item. That was free, by the way. All right, well, let's talk about... Did y'all bring a sack lunch today? I literally, I don't know how many slides I have, but I have a lot. Let's talk about the Assyrians and their religion. All right, the Assyrians and their religion. This is pretty interesting. Now, I want you to understand before we get into it, that the Assyrians had literally thousands of deities. They worshiped thousands of gods. I mean, right, gods. They didn't worship just one god. So when you think about it, how many gods was Jonah committed to? One God. Now that's different when you're walking in a city and you go, hey, I got a message about one God. Hey, dude, where, where have you been? Right? You look like you've been in a fish. Something's wrong with you. Right? You're, you're scrambled up there. Okay? I mean, get with the program. If you're going to be here in Nineveh, there are many gods, many temples. Pick one. Now, while they had thousands, there was 20 to 30 that they really focused in on, and a few that within the city of Nineveh, there were temples for those gods. Guys, I know this sounds crazy, but as I was thinking about it, I was like, man, Lord, for us, we look at that and go, these people are worshiping stones. But the reverse... We're worshiping a God we can't see. So for the world, they might be going, Jonah, you're nuts. Hey, Thad, you're nuts. But man, I look at my Bible, and I look at creation six literal days, and what God spoke and created, and I go, wow. And do you know what, guys? You know what's really great? You and I don't have to prove creation. We don't have to do that. Our Bible tells us that. See? And so these guys are worshiping stone images. Well, the, the one that um, kind of was the top dog, top god, is Asher. Now, the, word, the term Asher meant deity. He was the god of the Assyrian nation. Asher was the most important god of the Assyrian nation. Asher was the god above all the gods. I've got a picture of that god that I'm going to show you in just a minute. Scholars believe that the god Asher appears in ancient Assyrian images as the solar disk, a circle with wings depicting the father of gods. Assyrian kings had names that included Asher, meaning above all. In other words, there are several. If you look historically at the kings, a lot of them, their names begin with Asher. Right? And so 
with that comes this, hey, he's a God, okay, God-like. Um, so the Assyrians performed rituals and ceremonies, often sacrificing and worship to their gods, and they could sacrifice anything, even human life, okay? Um, in the Assyrian religion, it was assumed that a god or goddess needed, this is interesting, a home in order for humans to communicate with them. So the Assyrians built a primary temple for each of their gods. And if you go and you look on the internet, you can find it. They have scales of Nineveh, and you look at the different temples that existed. It's pretty interesting. Um, what about our God? How about our God? He's different, isn't he? Let me show you a picture of this God, Asher. Okay, this God, Asher. Um, that's a picture of the God, and you notice in his left hand was the warrior's bow. And in the right hand, you see it, it was lifted up. It was lifted up so as to bless the ones who were worshiping him. So not only did he go before them in battle, but he's blessing those who worship him. Um, and just like I showed you just a minute ago, I can back up here. You see where it says there that the scholars believe that the god Asher appeared in ancient uh, Assyrian images as a solar disk, a circle with wings, depicting the father of gods. And so you see those wings there depicting here the father of all the gods. Now we look at that and go, dude, you're worshiping a stone. There was a lot of them worshiping that stone. Do you know, I was thinking about that. You know the God of the United States of America? Self. And do you know that the God of the United States of America is being worshipped every day? People worship themselves all the time. Do you know that? And I want to tell you something. I'm not saying turn off Facebook, but I think Facebook's one of the greatest proponents of that. So look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. Now, that's a way to communicate here. Look at my grandkids, look at my kids, and that's great and wonderful. But I think the God of the United States of America is self. And I think there are many idols that myself and you struggle with. You notice how I did that order? Myself and you? Right, there's an idol in the southeast that's about to start in a little over a month. The idol of the hogs. You know, the Assyrians worshiped hogs. I had a picture, Robbie sent it to me, but it was too late. So they were being worshiped long before now, right? Just to make you feel better about that. I'll try to remember to show you a picture. But listen, these, these guys had literally thousands of gods. I wanted to show you some verses, or a verse here, about our God, okay? Let me show you this. Look what it says. Look at that. I love this. You know the context? Stephen's preaching. The Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Uh-oh. As the prophet says, heaven, that should say is, is my throne. Heaven is, and earth is the footstool of my feet. 
What kind of house will you build for me? <laughs> or, or what is the place of my rest? Says the Lord, right? Was it not my hands which made all these things? Now you read that and you go, wow. Okay, heaven is the throne, earth the footstool. <laughs> I mean, you think about literally how small earth is in comparison to the dominion of God and who he is. And yet, listen to me, he thinks about us, he loves us, he has compassion on us, and at this time he had compassion on the enemies of Jonah. And so he sends this man to Nineveh. Let me show you another list here. Of some gods, oh my goodness. Of some gods. Other gods of the Assyrians, there they are. The one that kind of uh, captured my attention was the very first one, Hadad. The weather god. god look at what, how it describes this god. God of the storms, creator and destroyer, the god of heaven. Is that the god of heaven? No. No. The god of heaven is the Lord God, the Almighty. The self-existent, eternal God of the Scriptures. And so when Jonah goes into this place called Nineveh, this is what he's facing. What does the Bible say about our God? You have all these gods here. What does the Bible say about our God? These verses come from Deuteronomy. I forgot to put them on there for you. Deuteronomy and uh, 1 Kings and Psalms, in that order. Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. Not many gods, but one God. Deuteronomy says, Unto you it was shown that you might know that the Lord, He is God. That's who we worship. The Lord, He is God. He is God. There is none else beside Him. You believe that today? None beside Him. There's none like Him. Know therefore this day and consider it in thine heart that the Lord, He is God in heaven above. And upon the earth below, there is none else. In 1 Kings, that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is none else. From Psalms, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Isaiah 40. This is a great example for us, guys. Isaiah chapter 40. If you brought a sack lunch, I would just keep going. Man, I've got lots to share with you guys. But I want to share this with you. Because I want you to understand, listen. Jonah the prophet understood the Lord God. It's clear from Jonah 1 and 2 he knew who God was. You remember last week we talked about that. He understood who the Lord was. In fact, one of the things he said about the Lord, he said he's sovereign, he said he's creator. He acknowledges all that. Now, the people of Nineveh, they're, they're polytheists, and they have many, many gods. And there's a message from the one God to the people of Nineveh. And I think for us, in order for us to appreciate this aspect of one God and who he is, and what Jonah's message was, I think Isaiah says really well about who our God is. Look, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens by the span. 
and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure. Guys, listen to me. We just didn't end up here. There's the God of all creation. And it was not, as Jonah ended Nineveh, it was not Hadad, Adad. He says, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Or as his counselor has informed him. <laughs> we don't inform him. You take the gall that, hey, I think God needs to know this. He already knows it. He knows all things. But listen to me, I want to make this clear. Yes, the Lord knows all things, but what does he want his people to do? Call out to him. He does want that. Verse 14, with whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? Who? Nobody. He's all-knowing. And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as, speck, as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God? My friends, listen to me. Jonah had a message. The messages we're going to see when we get into it, it's a short message. But hey, he knew who God was. Who do you compare to God? These gods that we looked at? Those gods? No. No, those were not the gods of Jonah. They were the gods of those in the Assyrian Empire in Nineveh. Look at this. As for the idol, a craftsman cast it, a goldsmith plates it with fine gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that does not rot, he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an idol that will not totter. Are you serious? But people are. People did. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing. We need to keep that in mind, my friends. He does that. Think about Nebuchadnezzar. He's in charge, guys. We need to believe that. He reduces rulers to nothing. And listen, as we get into chapter 3 and we see this, this king does something that you're like, Whoa! When you consider what he does as the people respond to the message, wow. Listen to me. God brings rulers to their knees. He does that. All right? He's in charge. Verse 24, scarcely have they been planted, scarcely have they been sown, scarcely has their 
stock taking root in the earth, but he merely blows on them and they wither. <laughs> Man, what kind of God do we serve? And listen, we get worried about little things. Psh, Lord's got all that. He's got it all. You're like, can I trust him? Well, you trusted him before. You can trust him today, and you can trust him tomorrow. The storm carries them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me <laughs> that I would be as equal, says the Holy One? There is no one like the Lord. There is no one beside the Lord. He is so far above, and Isaiah said it in the beginning of the book, the book holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. There is no one like him. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. You ever been out into a dark jungle area? I was in Belize in 92, and I went out to this area, this jungle, and I'm looking up in the sky, and there's star after star after star. My God's amazing. I need to act like he's amazing. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them by name. He knows exactly how many, and he knows their name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice do me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Woo! So I'm praying he gives you that strength for the next 45 minutes. How about that? He does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. What a message. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who, what, circle that word, wait for the Lord. We do not live in a time of waiting. People are impatient. They want it yesterday. You know, sometimes when we call out to the Lord, we have to wait. Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I cannot believe the time. Let me show you one more thing and we'll be done for this morning. You heard of the fish god, Dagon? Okay. So this goes back into the scriptures quite a bit. So there weren't just those gods I just threw up on the screen there. There's this fish god, Dagon. And they literally had pillars in Nineveh, fish pillars to this god. Dagon was the chief deity of the Philistines, and the worship of this pagan god dates back to the third millennium B.C., Dagon was the fish god, and he was represented as half man, half fish creature. The image furthered the evolutionary belief that both man and fish had evolved together from the primal waters. Seriously? Okay? There are three places in the Bible where Dagon is mentioned. Judges 16, 1 Chronicles 10, and 1 Samuel 5. Let me show you a picture. There's the picture there of the um, god Dagon. Now, in 1 Samuel 5, there's an interesting 
account. And this is where we'll close out our time to, together today. 1 Samuel 5. If you want to turn there, you can, but it's right up on that screen. Um, 1 Samuel 5, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And I want you to see what happens to this God, Dagon. 1 Samuel Chapter 5, look at this, verse 1. Now the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when the Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon, look at this, had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. Hold on a second. This is a God. But there's really but one God. And this God, Dagon, is humiliated. And so, for, so therefore, the people are humiliated. <laughs> Look what it says. When the Ashdodites, Ashdodites arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him in his place again. All right, this is where he goes. Seriously? But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. What a picture. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk, trunk of Dagon was left to him. Listen to me. What a picture. You have this false god who is Fallen down before the ark of God. Now listen to me. This is awesome. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will do it. Guys, listen. He's the victor. He's the only God. And that's the message that Jonah is going to go preach. We're going to get to it, I promise. I should have written you a note this week and said, bring your lunch. But I didn't. We'll stop there this morning and we'll kick it off again next week. We'll try to get into Jonah chapter 3. Let's pray. Lord, there's just so much here to think about. I was thinking about, Lord, as I was studying this last week and weeks, that, man, it's easy to criticize folks that disobey you. Um, pray we'd be real careful with that. As believers, we know that you want us to walk with you in fellowship every day. But we also, Lord, we're people. You created us. You know us. You know us full well. Hebrews says that we're laid open and bare before you. There's nothing about us you do not know. We fail you. We disobey you. All those things happen. Just like the prophet Jonah. But man, Lord, one of the things you're teaching me as I'm studying through this is like, man, Jonah's not the only one you gave a second chance to. Lord, there may be some in here today going, man, I just, I'm so disappointed in the Lord. There's no way he can forgive me. 
It's like, hold on a second. See, the Lord doesn't forgive like we do. He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. He casts them into the depths of the sea to be remembered no more. We don't serve some stone God or a wooden God. We serve the God of all creation. The God that is merciful and kind and compassionate and looks at our enemies and say, hey, they need the gospel. Lord, the people of Nineveh needed you just as much as the people of Israel did. What a picture, Lord, that your grace extends beyond your people. Help us never to forget that, Lord, you've called us, you've commissioned us to tell other folks about the good news of Jesus Christ. Help us to walk in fellowship with you today. We love you. And all this I pray in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, the one and only God. Amen. Before we close in word of prayer, just a reminder, those of you, those of you that are visiting, um, August 11th after church, we will have a uh, meeting just to let you know what our church is doing and who we are and what we believe, and we will provide lunch. Uh, so if you're interested, fill out one of these cards right there and put it in the offering plate or give it to Connie or Amanda, and we'd love to just um, talk with you and get to know you and tell you a little bit about who we are. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father God, I just thank you <clears throat> that you love us and that you are there for us. Lord, help us through the doubts and the struggles that we have. Um, Lord, thank you that you're not some rock or some thing that doesn't hear and that's not personal in our life. Thank you that you are a personal God that is alive and cares about all the details of our life. Lord, I pray that you'll go with us this week that we will not be ashamed of who we are in you, that you will give us the courage and the boldness and the opportunity to share our faith with those around us. 
go with us the rest of this day and uh, help us to love you in every way. In your name, amen. You are dismissed.